But um, no, I'm, I, I'm super stoked about starting this uh, brand new series. I've been praying about this for just a while, and it's awesome to be able to go through this. And so we're going to go through the whole book of 1 Timothy, like I said, this semester. We're going to go through passage by passage and break it all down. And so the very first one we're going to look at today is the first 11 verses, and it's called Guard the Gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at together. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses. And again, if you need the notes or anything else, those are on the back table. If you need your own journal, you never got one. A couple weeks ago, we hand those out. Those are yours for free for me to you, for you to use not just on Wednesday nights, but on Sunday mornings too. That's what it's meant for, to kind of get us in this habit of taking notes as we go through this. And uh, while you're turning there and uh, getting started, uh, I thought I'd start by asking this question. Anybody... Um, any of you ever started watching a video, whether it be on Facebook or YouTube or TikTok, whatever you name it, and next thing you know, several hours later, you are just on the weirdest video and you never know how you got there? Anybody ever been there? Anybody? 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 Okay. I'm not the only one. Or like, let's say you start on TikTok and all of a sudden you get on like the weirdest side of TikTok and you're like, how did I get here? What happened? It started with one video and then now I am... I'm like forever and a half away from where I started, and I don't know how it got to that point. Because originally we weren't on top of it. We kind of just mindlessly let it happen. We just kind of started with one small thing, and next thing you know, it led to another, and we're way down this path. We're like, how in the world did I get to this point? And I think in a lot of ways, uh, that can happen to us spiritually, that we start with something, and all of a sudden we let a little more truth, or we let a little more false teaching in, a little more false teaching in. And all of a sudden we look back and we're like, how in the world did we get from this point to this point? And just like we were mindlessly, let's say, watching videos, we kind of just let it happen. If we're not diligent about guarding the gospel, then our minds can just cut letting in different teachings that draw us away from the gospel. And so what we must do is, as believers, we need to guard the gospel at all costs. Because if we lose the gospel, then we lose everything. If we lose the gospel, then we lose our faith. We have nothing else to stand on. And so we want to see how we are to lead the way in guarding the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at. Because here's the thing. All of us are called to this. If, we are call, if you're called by Christ and you are a follower of Christ, then you're called to guard the gospel. And we're called to grow in our knowledge of the gospel so we can guard it better. But the thing is, we're fallen, sinful human beings at the same time. And naturally, we might not want to be able to guard it. We might be scared of how others might perceive it. We might be scared of other beliefs that people might have and going against that. We might be scared of being controversial, if you will, or speaking out against, let's say, what our classmates or teammates or other people might believe or being viewed as a bigot or might be scared of growing in our knowledge of the gospel. But here's what we need to see. Above everything else... The main point for tonight is this, by the grace of God, we are able to grow in our knowledge of the gospel and are able to defend the gospel. So only by the grace of God, we'll be able to not only grow in our knowledge of Christ, grow in our knowledge of the gospel, but we'll be able to defend the gospel as well with love as we're going to see. So again, we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses. So let's read those together first. This is what it says. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, 
mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away from vain discussion, or wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray. So Lord, we just come before you as fallen, sinful human beings in desperate need of your grace. We need your grace to help us grow more in our knowledge of you. We need your grace to help understand your word. We need your grace to help us be able to guard this precious gospel that you entrust in fragile jar clays like ourselves. Lord, I humbly confess right now that I am totally unable and incapable of being able to preach or teach or exposit any of these truths without the Holy Spirit helping me. So Holy Spirit, would you just humble me and humble everyone in this room Would you purify us of any pride we may have, free us up from any distractions we may have, so that we can submit ourselves to your authoritative word. By the Holy Spirit, by your grace, that you just help open up our minds to understand these truths. You open up our eyes to see even more of our need for Christ and just how amazing Christ is and how Christ is better. Would you just open up our ears to truly hear these truths and open up our hearts so we would submit them to you and you would convict us of sins that we have committed and turn back to you, but also encourage us with just the amazing truths from your word. All of this by your grace to help us grow more in our relationship with you, in our relationship with one another, so we can continue to strive to make Christ's name known. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's going to be two main truths that we get out of this passage tonight. And the first one is this, is that we are to guard the gospel at all costs. We are to guard the gospel at all costs. So here's a little bit of background of what's going on. So we kind of know what's going on, who is writing this, why are they writing this. So the Apostle Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. And so Timothy is a disciple of Paul. There's kind of this master-disciple relationship, which would be common in that time. And so Paul stationed Timothy in the city of Ephesus so that he can do two things. So he can combat any false teaching going on there, but also he can help raise up the churches to live in godly ways and be faithful in those manners. But here's the thing. Ephesus was a very large, diverse city. It was religiously complex. It was flourishing just commercially and economically. For a modern day for us to understand, it would be like a big, major metropolitan city. So think like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, like big cities that have a lot going on. And Paul is placing Timothy, who's probably in his early 20s, in this city. And he says, I want you to combat the false teachings that are going on there and help raise this church up to be faithful and godly living. 
So that is a lot. But of course, on top of it, like I said, this is a really religiously uh, complex city. In the middle, in the heart of this city is what's called the Temple of Artemis. And so Artemis is the Greek goddess according to Greek mythology. And it's the Greek goddess of, let's say, like uh, of wild animals, of vegetation, of childbirth, things like that. And so there's a cult that followed this and they would influence a lot of things that people would have. Let's say beliefs on animals and eating animals and marriage, things like that. Things that were contrary to the gospel or added to the gospel. And so this is just one of those things that Timothy is to combat. And so Paul is writing to encourage Timothy to help him combat these false teachings. But also, not only is he writing to Timothy, but Timothy would have read this at the church in Ephesus. So he's reading this in front of it. And we'll see that there's many truths that we're to understand too. That Paul's writing this for us to understand how we are to act not only in the household of God, but also how we are to serve those around us and combat false teachings around us as well. And so these false teachings are diverting people away from the gospel. Like this is not just a preference thing about, let's say, do we want to sing hymns or do we want to sing contemporary music? Like this is major, major important theological things. So again, this is not a preference of, do we want to sing hymns or contemporary music? It's not a thing of like, hey, which color of paint do you want to have on the house? No, it's debating over what is the foundation of this house? And so that is what he's debating over right now. And so we see now in the introduction, now Paul starts this and he gives his introduction by giving his credentials and giving his theology. So his first thing is what it says is, look, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So immediately what he's saying is he's saying, look, he is an apostle. He has apostolic authority because of God. And so that means he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament that we read. And so if Paul is saying, look, like he is an apostle and has this authority, then we would be wise to listen to what he has to say about these matters. But then he also says on top of that, that he's stating that is God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. And so what we see is he's stating that God is our Savior. He is our Lord. Christ Jesus is our hope. And so we'll see how this will tie into Old Testament truths that he's going to debunk on top of this. And so from the very beginning, since Paul is saying that God is our Savior and that Christ Jesus is our hope, as he's writing to Timothy in the middle of all the hecticness and craziness that Timothy has to deal with, we see this first truth is that no matter how bad our situation is, Christ Jesus is still our hope and is still our Lord. So just as Timothy's dealing with false teachings and all the craziness in that city, just like we might deal with craziness today in our lives and everything that might go on around us, that regardless of what happens, Christ is still our hope and he's still our Lord, regardless of what happens around us. Because here's the thing, rightfully so, and I think honestly and understandably, Timothy is pretty intimidated by this. That's what we see in verse 3, where Paul says, look, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So Paul is urging Timothy to remain at Ephesus. Because again, Timothy is about early 20s during this time or so. Probably early to mid-20s. And again, he's in the middle of this gigantic city having to combat all these things going on around him. And Paul is entrusting him to this. I think anybody would be intimidated and anybody be worried if they're stuck in the middle of this and they just see everything going on around them and they're, they're having to try to combat all of this. I think anyone would be intimidated. 
A way for us to understand this day is maybe that's how some of you feel when you go to school or when you go to your work or when you go to, let's say, theater or sports or whatever else you may be a part of. You might be surrounded by a bunch of people that have beliefs that are totally in contrast to what you believe about Christ and the gospel. And that it just they might have totally differing views, let's say, on gender and sexuality, on race and racial relations and and so many different other things about how people are to live about tolerance or pluralism or anything else like that and you might feel like you're in the minority in that and you think man how do I how am I supposed to stand up for my faith in just the middle of let's say my school and so we're to be encouraged by that again as we look back at that one that Christ is still our hope and is still our lord even in the midst of whatever we might be going through even if we feel like we're in the minority on that so here's what we see then. Paul is charging Timothy, and we see the effects of the charge that Paul is giving. So Paul is giving him a charge to the false teachers in Ephesus, and we see the effects of those false teachings by those false teachers. And so he is urging to stay at Ephesus, and it says that, I may char- that you may charge those certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So Paul gives Timothy a charge. This word charge... They're going to charge those people. It's a military term, meaning you are going to pass on this command from me to those people. So it is a very serious thing that Paul is giving to Timothy. And he's saying, by the authority of God, you need to charge these false teachers to stop teaching these different doctrines that are in contrast to what the gospel is saying. And we see again, we see the effects of these false teachings. It says these false teachers are devoting themselves in verse four to myths. And endless genealogies. So we're not sure on the specifics of what beliefs they're having. We're not quite sure what those specific beliefs are. But just a couple of things for us to understand. A myth, at least how they're interpreting it, it's a piece of fiction. It's legends used to promote immorality. So it's stories taken from the past and used to justify behavior that was contrary to God's call of righteousness. And then endless genealogies are just histories and different prophetic speculations that are rising literally just out of guesswork just to be different or desire to be different. So one of these things about myths is just this piece of fiction. It's a mythical story that in the end would lead to just this belief of immorality or justifying immorality. So a personal example I can actually give in my life of hearing this is um, I was actually able to meet a while back with a couple Mormon missionaries. And it was really interesting we, we, we met and I was just able to ask different questions and kind of just talk to each other about what each other's beliefs were. And I was just kind of asking them, what do they believe and, and, and how that lines up with scripture. And one of the things the guy said really caught my attention. And he was saying how in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve and we see God gave Adam and Eve two commands to be fruitful and multiply and then to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And according to him, what he said is that Adam and Eve recognized that apparently the greater command was to be fruitful and multiply. And so in order to be fruitful and multiply and to grow more in their relationship with God, they had to disobey and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that struck me saying, hold on. So you're telling me that in order to grow more in your relationship with God, Adam and Eve had to disobey God. Do you see how that would lead to immorality or be contrary to what the gospel says or something that's not even found in scripture? Yet this is something that he was saying. It was a myth that they were saying and how this false teaching led to this false belief and this false behavior that flowed from that. 
Even in the end, when I was sharing the gospel with him about how Christ lived a perfect, sinless life and died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, and that's what we believe in, they go, oh yeah, we believe in that too. And I'm thinking, no, we're in totally different worlds. That we might be using the same, the same words, but totally different definitions. Why? Because they had a totally false view of Christ, false view of sin, false view of these things in their lives. And so we see when that happens... That false belief can lead to false behavior and can lead us to totally going way off course from the gospel. Of why we, t- we need to understand the gospel and what it is so we can guard the gospel at all costs. Because that way if we understand it, we won't just mindlessly go, oh yeah, that, that sounds good. That sounds right. Again, this false teaching would lead to false behavior and we see the contrast of that in verse 4. So we see that they devoted themselves to endless genealogies and myths which says it promotes speculation. And so it's speculating about just all these minor things that have nothing to do with the gospel, that they're over-investigating stuff that has nothing to do with what we believe. Yet it says in the second half, so we see which promotes speculation, rather than the stewardship from God, the gospel, that is by faith. And so we see this next truth, false teaching always leads to confusion and disorder, while the gospel always leads to clarity and order. False teachings always lead to confusion and disorder. The gospel always leads to clarity and order. Because we see what happens is when these people started devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies and things that had nothing to do with the gospel, adding on to the law, things of that nature, is that it started causing confusion, it caused disorder, it caused factions, it caused different divisions within that church and within the area. Yeah, what do we see with the gospel? The gospel brings clarity on what we believe. The gospel brings unity. It brings order into our lives. In fact, that word stewardship in verse 4, rather than the stewardship from God's stewardship, another word for that is good order. And so we see the gospel brings order to our lives. It brings clarity to our lives. It reveals who we are. It reveals what we believe. And so we're going to see later is that false teachings are always man-centered and gospel teachings are always Christ-centered. The gospel always brings order and clarity because it comes from God. And that false teachings always bring confusion and disorder because it comes from man. In fact, that raises the question for us today. Are there certain beliefs that maybe you are believing today? Here's just several ones that that people have in the world. One of them is what's called pluralism. What that means is, it means, well, all religions are the same, or all religions are just different paths that lead to the same mountaintop. They all lead to God. They're just different paths. You might see the sticker that says coexist on the back of different, let's say, cars or on laptops or things like that. That it says, ultimately, all religions lead to God. When that's not the same, there's only one way to God, and that is Jesus Christ. That's what we see in, that's what we see in John 14, 6, where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Another belief that's today is about this view of truth or what's called relativism. Relativism means just all truth is purely subjective. Whatever you believe is true, then that is true. Speak your truth is what I'll hear a lot of times. Thing is, that's not true. But also if you say all truth is relative then you're making an objective statement that all truth is subjective. But we see is that there's not just a bunch of different truths. There's only the truth, which is the gospel. We see Christ. Or do you buy into the world's view of self? The world's view of self is that all that matters is how you feel. 
Whatever you feel internally, then you need to make your external circumstances match what you feel internally. And we see a lot of people that follow through that. Just follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. You do you. But what we see in Scripture is that Christ does not say follow our hearts. Christ says crucify your hearts. That you are to deny yourself daily. That's what it says in Luke 9.23. Because our hearts, as it says in Jeremiah 17.9, are deceitfully wicked above everything else. Who can know it except God? So when we believe into these false teachings, we will start to live out these false teachings. We can lead to confusion and disorder in our lives. It can lead to factions and divisions within each other. And so we have to make sure that we guard the gospel. And we see why are we to guard the gospel in verse 5. He gives us the aim. So again, Paul is, Paul is saying, Timothy, give this charge. And here's the aim of his charge in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Our aim of our charge is love. Everything we do as Christians is to be fueled by love. It's fueled by what we see in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, where it says, What is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything we do as Christians, it's out of this overflow of love because we love God dearly. And we want to obey him. And we love people and care for their souls. Again, we're not trying to correct false teachings of other people from a place of arrogance, but a place of humility. We are not trying to promote, we're not trying to correct false teachings from a place of superiority or believe that we're better than someone or that we're holier than thou, but a place of recognizing that we need Christ every single day. Because what we'll see later is without the gospel, we would be right in the same position as those people believing false teachings. Without the gospel, we would be right in their shoes too. And we remind ourselves that we need the gospel every day. And that's why we do this from place of love. And it says this love comes from pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart, heart is literally the core of who you are. That is what it means in scripture. It's the core of every decision you make. It's the central station of all you are. It's sort of have a pure heart. It says a good conscience, conscience being able to distinguish between right and wrong. So we can have good direction between what is right and wrong. And the gospel is what tells us what is right and wrong. and helps us distinguish that. And it says a sincere faith, which is the genuineness of our faith. It's not something that is just surface level. It is something that goes beneath the surface and is just internally within us that overflows out from us. We cannot have any of these if there is not love for God. Because we see is that as we sang in that song, Jesus is better, Jesus, make my heart believe. And we see that truth in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, where it says, look, before we were in Christ, we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our sins. We're following all the philosophies and truths and teachings that this world gives us. And we're just dead in our sins. We're children under wrath. But then in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ, that God makes us alive and that out of his love, he helps transform us and out of his grace and mercy, he helps us be able to live this out and help us have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Because we see this next truth, the gospel humbles and transforms us. The gospel humbles and transforms us. It humbles us because we realize before a holy God, we are sinners. And we're definitely going to see that in the second half. When we compare our lives even up to the Ten Commandments. And we stand before God, we are sinners. 
It should humble us, knowing that without the grace of God, we would be lost and dead in our sins. But thanks to the grace of God, it transforms us. It brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, that God entrusts us with the same gospel that saves us. And how amazing that is. So if, we, if our charge of guarding the gospel and protecting against false teachings and correcting false teachings comes from love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, let me ask these questions. Do you like proving people wrong? Because there's some people, they love proving people wrong. They, they love one-upping people. They love when they're in a debate. They, they lay down that just trump card and they, they win. People love doing that. Um, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure some of the husbands in the back can talk about if they've ever debated their wife. They lay down that card. Boom. But here's the thing. What is your motivation behind correcting someone? What is your motivation when it comes to wanting to correct someone? Are you just trying to do that to one-up them and just feel superior over that? Or is it truly out of love of just, no, this person's going in the wrong direction and I want to help steer them back onto the right course. Our motivation must always be from this humble position the gospel puts us in of wanting to serve God and well and serve those people. It always must be from this posture of love that we love God dearly and that we love this person as a precious soul that God made and that Christ died for. That is why we guard this gospel from a position of love and humility. That is why we do this. So what we see then in verse 6 and 7 is what happens when we wander away from the gospel. We start moving away from this transformative gospel. We see what happens. So in verse 6 it says this. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things in which about they make confident assertions. So these same persons, when it says certain persons in verse 6, that's the same people that uh, Paul is talking about in verse 3. They're teaching these different doctrines. And so what we see is what happens to people when they stray away from the gospel, because it is only by the gospel that someone can have, again, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the more we move away from the gospel, the more we're going to move away from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The more we move away from the gospel, we'll fall more and more into sin. We'll know less and less about distinguishing between right and wrong. And our faith will become less and less genuine and sincere. It says these people have swerved from these truths. Another way for swerve, it just means they deviated away from this. So they've deviated away from the gospel. And they have deviated away from the truth of the gospel. And now they're wandering into what scripture says, vain discussions. Vain, it just means conversations that are unproductive and useless. They're unproductive and useless. The gospel is what is fruitful. These vain conversations are fruitless. Why? Because there's no power in it. There's nothing behind it. And all it does is lead people astray and lead people to destruction. False teachings are useless, meaningless, because they only puff someone up. And they pull us more away from the gospel. From this life-saving, transforming power of the gospel. And it says these false teachers, they're desiring to be teachers of the law. When in reality, Paul's saying they don't know anything about the law. 
They don't know anything about it because they keep trying to add stipulations to it or they're interpreting it wrong or they're totally coming out of left field with some of these things. They are not. It's a, he literally, Paul is saying they're unintelligent and they're ignorant to the law. They don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they are teaching. Yet even though they don't know a thing about the law, they keep making these confident assertions about the law. A helpful thing for us today is just because someone says it with confidence doesn't make it true. Just because a certain, let's say, post has a bunch of likes or retweets or comments or a bunch of amens underneath it does not make that true. It does not. So what we see is we only make confident assertions from Scripture. We only make confident assertions from Scripture. Why? Because that is what we filter everything through. We filter everything through the lens of this. We filter everything through Scripture. That is what we must do. Any claim that someone makes, any post we see, anything we have, we must test it according to Scripture. That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. It says, test everything. Or even in Acts, there was a group called the Bereans. When Paul came to talk to them, the Bereans would study day and night what the law said so they can measure up what Paul was saying to make sure that it lined up with Scripture. That even when the Apostle Paul came, they said, we want to make sure it lines up with Scripture because that is what's most important. I want you to do the same thing for Pastor Kenneth and Pastor Aaron and myself. That you line up everything we say according to Scripture. Because our authority does not come from ourselves. Our authority comes from Scripture. My prayer is that any time I say, look, by the authority of God's word, this truth, is that it's true because it comes from God's word, not because I say it is. That we're only called to say what Scripture says. And the more we understand what Scripture says and what the gospel is, the more we can differentiate what false teachings are. In fact, any, anybody know how uh, people that make $100 bills are able to differentiate between real and fake $100 bills? Uh, there's like a, people that Yep, that's one way. Um, if you, like, on a $100 bill or a real one, if you move it side to side, the little mm-hmm. numbers, like the little blue line, okay. numbers will move up and down. If you move up and down, All right. Exactly. How they differentiate between a real and fake one is they spend hours studying a real $100 bill. How it looks, how it feels, all the last, down to the last little detail. So that way, when they come in contact with a fake $100 bill, they could be like, that is not a true $100 bill. Why? Because they spent so much time studying a true $100 bill. They would be able to different. They would be able to tell the difference just by, let's say, touching it or even looking at it. And that's the same way we are to treat the gospel. That we should know Scripture and study the gospel so much that we can guard it. So when we see a false teaching, we say that does not line up with Scripture. That is against what the gospel says. And so we need to know these things because what we see is these people don't know the law and they're misinterpreting the law. They're misapplying the law. Here's the truth we want to see is the second main point is this. The law points us to the gospel. The law points us to the gospel. We see in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Paul says that the law is good if we use it lawfully, if we use it rightfully, if we properly understand the purpose of the law and the use of the law, then we'll see that it is good and that it is lawful. And so there are three uses for God's law that I want us to understand, okay? First one is it's to show God's restraint of sin. It's to show God's restraint of sin. It shows how it restrains the behavior of sin. It shows how it's supposed to hold back sin and how someone is supposed to properly act and walk within those guidelines. But we see the second purpose of that. It's to show God's condemnation of the sinner. It's to show God's condemnation of the sinner. Because the law is going to reveal our sin. It's going to reveal the sinful tendencies of our hearts. And it says every time we sin, we are deserving of death. Whenever we disobey God's law. So it shows God's condemnation of the sinner, but it also shows God's will for the saved. It shows God's will for the saved. And then we see what Paul does over this next couple verses. He just lays out the Ten Commandments. And so we see in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is good if we use it lawfully. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so we see the law is not just for, it's not meant for the just, it's meant for the lawless and disobedient. We see that in the life of Jesus where he says, look, I did not come to see, I came to seek and to save the lost, not those that are walking righteously. Jesus did not come to save the righteous, but save the sinner. That's what it says in Mark 2, 17. And here's the thing. Before we're in Christ, we're the ones that are lawless and disobedient before we come to know Christ. We are the ones that were lawless and disobedient before God commanded us to be followers of him. And in fact, the law reveals how we are lawless and disobedient, ungodly and profane and unholy sinners. And that's to point us to the beauty of the gospel that saves unholy, profane sinners like us. And so Paul just lays out, as we look through it, it actually points back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus. So when it talks about someone being disobedient, one of the first commands it says is that you shall have no other gods before me. Anybody ever place something in more priority than God? Anybody ever desire something more than God? Whether it be a relationship with someone, whether it be academics, whether it be sports, you place the more priority of that above God. That is one way that we are disobedient, that, that we are ungodly, or that we're profane. Profane meaning we take the Lord's name in vain. Anybody ever take the Lord's name in vain? Whether you think it or say it out loud, whether you say OMG or you say whatever attached to it. You know another way that we profane God's name is if we're, let's say, wearing a cross necklace or we have some sort of apparel that says we are a follower of Christ and our lives do not match up with what that is. You know, key example that I can think of from extreme winter off the top of my head is let's say someone's wearing this cross necklace yet they're swearing all over the place. Yet they're wearing a cross necklace. We profane God's name. Here's some more modern day examples. So Paul uses, I'll admit this, Paul uses the extremes of these in the, New, in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. 
But I want us to see how there's modern day translations for us today. So as I go through these, I just want you to think about this in your minds. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to think about this. As I go through these, if you have ever been guilty of one of these. So the first one, it says, those who strike their mothers and fathers. So I'm not going to say, let's say, if you've, if you've ever hit your mother or father. But in the commandment in Exodus 20, 12, it says, honor your father and mother. Have you ever disobeyed your mom or dad? Have you ever not done what they said? Have you ever done what you wanted to do rather than what they wanted to do? Have you ever thought what they said is stupid or didn't want anything to do with them? So we've disobeyed our father and mother and we've broken one of the commandments. It says a murderer. Maybe you've never physically committed murder, like it says in Exodus 20, 13. But in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, Jesus says, if you even hate someone in your heart, if you have anger for someone in your heart, then it's the exact same as committing murder against that person. Anybody ever just so hate someone so badly? If so, if you've ever had that hate and anger in our heart, it says we've committed murder. Or it says the sexually immoral or practicing sexual morality. In Exodus 20, 14, it says those who practice, though, do not commit adultery. Or in Matthew 5, 27 through 28, it says if you even lust after someone in your hearts, you've committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after someone, desired someone, whether it be male or female? Or another one that plagues so many people today is being, watched, being watching and addicted to pornography. How that plagues so many people. That if we've done that, then we are committing adultery. We're breaking that. Another one says enslavers. So we might not think, well, I'm not stealing people and enslaving them, forcing them to do something. But what these enslavers are doing, it's breaking Exodus 20, 15, where it just says they are stealing. Anybody ever stole something that didn't belong to you and you kept it? If you have, there's another commandment that you have broken. Or it says liars. Anybody ever told a little white lie or just stretched the truth a little bit? And we're breaking the commandment of bearing false witness against our neighbors. Or it says perjurers. What perjurers are is those that someone breaks an oath in court. Have you ever seen someone that puts their hand on the Bible and says, I solemnly swear that I will, I will tell the whole truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And if they lie, then they are breaking that oath. Another way for us to claim it today, anybody ever made a promise? Like, hey, I promise I'll pay you back next week if you help take care of this today. Or Lord, if you get me out of this mess, I promise, then I, I will never, I will never stray away from you ever again. I will always be on fire for you. I'll always live for you. I promise. This I swear to you. Well, if you haven't fallen through on that, you're breaking an oath. According to Scripture in Matthew 5, 37, that you're breaking the gospel. Or you're breaking the law. And we're guilty of that. And that says anything else contrary to the gospel of Christ in verse 10, the end of it. Because anything contrary to the gospel of Christ will result in ungodly living. That is why we must make sure we have the gospel certain in our lives. We understand the gospel correctly by his grace, then we're able to obey it and live it out by his grace. Because here's we see this last truth. The law exposes our sin, but the gospel saves us from our sin. The law exposes our sin, but the gospel saves us from our sin. So yes, the... As we looked at the Ten Commandments, maybe we have dishonored our father and mother. Yes, maybe we have hated someone in our heart and committed murder. Yes, maybe we have lusted after someone and committed adultery. Yes, maybe we have lied. Maybe we have stolen something. Maybe we have broken an oath. But what that points us to is the law cannot save us. That's pointing out sinful outward behaviors. That's reflecting an inward reality. 
Because we are sinners in need of grace. And so that points us to the gospel. That points us to Christ saying, hey, Christ has come to die for those sins. And he has paid the penalty for all of those sins for all of time. You don't have to add anything to that. You just have to believe in him. Believe in his finished work on the cross and you are saved. It's not, oh, I have to believe in the gospel and then make sure I have perfect attendance at church. So I add my way to the gospel. It's not, oh, I got to believe in the gospel and then I got to make sure I read the Bible in a year. It's not, oh, I got to believe in the gospel and I got to do X, Y, and Z. No, it's just, look, repent and believe in the gospel and you are saved. That's the beauty of the gospel. Is that, yes, we are sinners in desperate need of grace, but God extends his grace to everyone who repent and believe and apply it to their lives. That is the purity of the gospel we hold on to. And that's why we must guard the gospel at all costs because it is such good news. So let me ask you this. How are you guarding the gospel? How are you guarding the gospel in your own personal life? Are you allowing false teachings to come into your life? Are you allowing those around you that believe things contrary to what you believe to influence your life and your behavior and how you live? Are you guarding the gospel in your school, sports teams, theaters, jobs, neighborhoods? Are you guarding it so that those people who believe these false teachings, you can correct them, not out of superiority, but out of love because you care for them and care for their souls and want to see them saved? How are you guarding the gospel? And follow that, are you growing in your knowledge of the gospel? Because we can't guard the gospel if you don't know the gospel. We must grow in our knowledge of the gospel so we can defend it and guard it. If you're not growing your knowledge of the gospel, have you been saved by the gospel? Have you repented of your sins and believed in this beautiful gospel? You've been saved of your sins. Because when you're saved of your sins, when you're saved, you believe in the gospel, it'll stir a desire for us to grow in our knowledge of the gospel. And that'll lead us to having a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith for us to guard the gospel. And if we are a follower of Christ, we are to lead that way in this regard, that we are to guard the gospel at all costs. That just as Timothy was placed in Ephesus to guard the gospel there, you are placed in your schools and everywhere you are to guard the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you so much just for this beautiful gospel. We thank you so much how it saves wretched sinners like us that can be so ungodly and so disobedient and so profane, yet Christ came to save sinners. And as we'll see next, we came to save sinners. Of who I am the worst, foremost, and chief, we thank you for your grace, which help each and every one of these young adults in this room. Excuse me. Help us to guard the gospel by your grace. Help us to protect ourselves from any false teachings that might enter into our hearts and would affect the way we live. Help us to be able to live for you. Help remind us that the gospel points us, or the law points us to the gospel. And how, yes, the law might expose our sin, but then it points us to the beauty of the gospel that saves us from our sin. And that same gospel that saves us helps us by that strength to guard that same gospel too. And then to go out and to help other people and point them to the gospel so they can believe in it too and be saved. Protect all of us, help all of us, grow more in our knowledge of you and to live this out. And it's only by your grace we can do any of this. In Jesus' name, amen.